I went back this week, and, and maybe like some of you watched an old Billy Graham sermon. Um, he was in his late 30s, which was remarkable to me to see um, him preaching before these massive crowds at a really relatively young age, fiery, bold about the subject of sin. Graham, decades later, commented that his preaching changed over the years. Um, he said that in his earlier years, he, quote, preached with much more fire and vigor. Part of that, he said, was youthfulness. Part of it was intensity. Part of it was conviction. Uh, certainly, the message I saw in 1957, he was speaking before a packed house at Yankee Stadium, and he was being unequivocal about the subject of sin. In fact, his comment was, to, to begin the sermon, the great sin of America tonight is idolatry. And then he went on to explain that sin is transgression. The sinners are those who break God's law, breakers of God's law, as he put it. And he said, every person is guilty of breaking God's law. And then Graham went on and he said, one of the laws that every person in the stadium tonight has broken is the first commandment, something that in 1957 probably an audience had a better sense of knowing what those commandments were than perhaps today. But he said, that first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he went on to describe what he called American gods. We have gods of lust, gods of secularism, gods of indifference, gods of amusement, and gods of all kinds of materialism. Probably not much has changed over 60 years in terms of those sorts of prevailing attitudes. Too often, though, today there is a, a lack of conviction of sin in, in popular preaching. If you surf through TV preaching, you don't often hear messages that address the issue of sin in a clear and honest way about the fact that it means death and destruction. More importantly, that sin is what separates man from a holy God. Uh, when we are calling people to trust in Jesus Christ... The truth about sin should not be something that we sort of gloss over in some way or that we try to move through quickly so we can get to the better stuff, at least we, we would deem it that, or the easier stuff. Uh, the reality is we need to address sin. People need to understand that it is not a complete gospel if sin is not understood to be a part of that. That is the work of Jesus Christ to come and give his life to forgive sinners, to bring us to God. And we learned that from our Savior Jesus Christ in his preaching. He was unashamed about preaching conviction of sin to people who desperately needed salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. If you have your Bible, you can open to John chapter 7 this morning. And we're going to go through the first half of John chapter 7. And the thing I, I want you to notice as we walk through this is just the number of instances in which Jesus keeps coming back to the power of conviction of sin as he's teaching as he's engaging with these individuals, he, he seems to kind of keep poking at their hearts, if you will, to help them to see that they are sinners in need of grace and in need of salvation. Just when they are feeling their, their self-righteous best, uh, Jesus says something again that exposes their sin. I'm going to pick up, we'll go all the way through verse 31 this morning, but let me just read the first six verses just to begin with in John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, just again, by way of background, John chapter 5, 
Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is in that southern region of Judea. Uh, We end John chapter 5 after he performed the miracle of the healing of the man who had been paralyzed for some 38 years there at the pool of Bethsaida. And immediately then we go into that discourse where he is facing opposition because he healed the man on the Sabbath. And there are questions about who he is, who he can be, that he can do that. And he claims equality with God, a subordinate and function equality with God. And so they begin plotting his death at the end of John chapter 5. So in John 6, Jesus is in Galilee. This is a period from John 5 to where we are in John 7. It's probably almost a year, maybe just a little bit under a year. It's a little tough to precisely date John 5 because the feast there is not prescribed, but it's probably close to a year. And so when you get to John 6, we get two days out of the life of Christ in Galilee at the time of Passover. So between the end of John 6 in Galilee and the beginning of John 7, where this discussion now is about the Feast of Booths, there's six months that pass. We know that because the Feast of Passover would have been in the spring. Feast of Booths was a harvest festival in the fall. And so this six-month period passes. A lot of that is included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A lot of that is the parables in Matthew and Luke, where Jesus is instructing his disciples, uh, where he is maybe perhaps a little bit lower key in some sense uh, and, and working more with ministering to those who will carry on his work, the, the, the immediate disciples. Um, and so when we get to verse 1 of chapter 7, John tells us that Jesus had purposely stayed in Galilee because this is according to God the Father's timing. He is not going down in Judea. There is the plot to kill him down there. And so he is remaining in Galilee because it is not the time for his death yet in Jerusalem. Along come Jesus' earthly siblings, the, the younger brothers who would have been born to Mary and Joseph. And they sort of prod or, or poke here at Jesus just a little bit. They, they, they say, you know what? There's people who you should go speak to in Jerusalem. If, if you're looking to build up followers, if you're looking to, to be a leader, then you should go to the, the head of the, the, the nation. You should go to the nation's capital, really. You should go to the place where the Jewish leaders are, and you should present yourself, and you should speak there, and let people hear you. So they are sort of tempting, if you will, but looking at what they think is the wise thing to do. Why make all these claims here? Go ahead and make them in Jerusalem. So, verse 6, then, Jesus responds. He says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Twice, Jesus has said, My time has not yet come. Twice, he has made the explicit point that his timing is bound by something else. And and we know from John chapter 5, when he talked about, I have come to do the will of the Father. I don't speak on my own. I do as the Father leads me. That he understands that his time is subject to God the Father, to the will and the timing of God the Father. He is in submission to the Father. Um, There's something else here, though, that the brothers don't understand. They don't get that part. But then Jesus says, essentially, you are part of the world. Because he says to them, my time's not come, your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Jesus is making the point, your, your time is fine. You, you, you function, you do what you want. Um, you don't have any sense, it would seem, for the, the will of the Father and, and 
timing that is his. You guys aren't even thinking about the will of God, and his timing doesn't matter to you. You're not under any commission. In fact, then he makes this connection here that the world embraces you. The world may hate me, but not you. And he is now tying them by, by way of indicting them to the world. And the reason for the unbelieving Jews' hatred of Jesus, as he points out here in verse 7, it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Because the world is evil, I could speak to the world if I wanted about God's love and kindness and, and all kinds of happy things, but what they don't want to hear is about their sin. Because that's the thing I've come to convict is sin. And so he is, he is uniting his brothers to the world at this point. They are unbelievers, as John comments for this point. We know they will not come to faith in Christ until after his resurrection. And then we will see James, the, certainly the book of James, as one example of one of his siblings having um, come to faith and now ministering to others. But here he is saying, the world is evil and you are part of the world. This is this first statement of conviction from Jesus. He doesn't talk about sin in just sort of vague, kind of abstract ways, Jesus plainly says, the world will not embrace me because it is evil, because it is sinful, and it does not want to be exposed. This is that what he said to us earlier in the Gospel of John, the world doesn't come to the light because it doesn't want to be seen in the light, and so it rejects that and it remains in darkness. And so the things done by the world are evil, and he is including his brothers now in this in indictment. And, and the reason he's doing that is their, their very attempt to push Jesus into going to Judea at that moment, apart from the will of God, is in defiance of the will of God. They're saying, Here's what you this is what's politically expedient. Here, here's some of the, the, the first century political consultants, if you will. If you want to be known, go to Jerusalem and go speak publicly there. They, they are completely opposite of what God's will is at this point. They're not seeking God's will. And they are just simply taking the place of God. It wasn't simply that they're ignorant of God's timing. They just thought their timing was better. And that's sin. And that's why Jesus is indicting them at this point. So verse 9 says, after he said this, he remained in Galilee. And then verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Let's pause there a minute because this is these, these last couple of verses, 8 and 9, and then verse 10 create some confusion. Scholars have pointed out that throughout history there have been commentators who have wrestled with this, no, I'm not going, I'm remaining, and then he does go after they leave to the point that some um, commentators have said, well, maybe Jesus was deceiving his brothers at this point. I won't go to Jerusalem, and then he does. So what's up? The answer to that is ultimately who he is being submissive to. That's what this is a lesson in, is Jesus saying that he will do what the Father wills for him to do, not his brothers. This is not a question of doing what his brothers tell him, but doing when the Father says, when the Father says. He's not saying no to his brothers about just about when, but it's, it's that he is not going to be led by them into doing this. He is not going to be subordinate to them, but it is rather to the Father. The time is appointed by God, not by them. This feast was eight days long, so presumably a couple of days pass by before Jesus goes down to Judea. A couple of days pass between the time Jesus says, my time has not yet come, and the time that he does go to Judea, and the time that it has come. God's timing is precise. 
It matters to us who are believers in Jesus Christ because how many times in life have you prayed and said, God, please do this now. Please help this to happen now, please, somehow. I, I know that you're probably developing patience in me, but I sure would love to see whatever this is taken care of at this moment. And we are reminded continually that we are subject to God's timing, not ours. That's why those, those requests don't always get answered in the immediate way that we might perhaps want at that moment because we are waiting on God. The Psalms are filled with these kinds of exhortations to wait on the Lord, to be patient in waiting for him. Psalm 27 is one. David is surrounded by adversaries who wish to harm him. And David is sort of preaching to himself, encouraging himself to sing and and in Psalm 27, 14, he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It is scripture reminding us again that we are to be submissive to God's timing, that we, we may plead and we may pray and we may desire, but ultimately we are to submit to the will of God and to whatever his good timing is. And that is the issue here with the brothers. I'm not doing this because you say so. I'm doing this when my father says it is time for me to do this. So verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So here's the scene now. Remember, roughly a year has passed since the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida and the plot to begin to kill Jesus. Despite all that passage of time, Jesus not in that area, he is still a primary focus of discussion. The people are still chatting amongst themselves and wondering, is Jesus coming? What will Jesus do? And then these questions of, is Jesus a good guy or is he a bad guy? Both opinions are entirely inadequate. People debating about the goodness of Jesus Christ because it completely misses the point that Jesus Christ didn't come so that people could say, oh, he's, he's a good guy. He came to be the Savior of the world. He came as the Lamb of God to give his life as a ransom for sinners. And so they are completely missing the point when it's good guy, bad guy, not really sure. We'll still watch him a little bit. They are missing what he has come to do, and they are debating amongst themselves. And in fact, it says they're trying to keep it sort of quiet because they understand that the religious leaders don't want this kind of widespread conversation about Jesus. They want Jesus diminished, if not executed. And so even the crowds know better than to have this as an open debate. They are keeping it to themselves because the religious leaders don't want Jesus as some focal point of conversation. So verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The crowd's... Initial reaction to Jesus is fascination. Where does he get this kind of authority from in his teaching? Remember that all along the mantra for those who want to dismiss Jesus, and we saw it again last week, is, is this line that says, we know this guy. We know where he's from. We know who he was born to. He is ordinary at best, just sort of a mediocre background. He doesn't have any training in any great rabbinical schools. He hasn't sat under any scholars. And so how is it now that when he preaches, we are just sort of captured by the authority with which he speaks? This is contrary to, to anything else we've seen, and it doesn't make sense. 
verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Pause there. Jesus seems to make some moves here. We just want to talk about this a little bit. First thing he does is he points back to something he's told them before. If you are thinking to yourself, this is unusual authority, unusual command of the truth, and unusual power in the way he speaks, if you're wondering about this, that's because there is. It is the power of God. I am speaking as God to you. I am speaking to you the word of God. And so, yes, if you're sensing that there's something different about this, you should. That's because I'm not making this stuff up. The, the common practice for rabbis in that day was to quote rabbis who came generations before, to, to read from the, their commentaries on, on the law and, and cite other famous rabbis. Jesus is not doing any of that. Jesus is just speaking as God and, and delivering truth to them, and they are amazed by that. And in fact, he says, I'm not one of these guys that's looking to rack up points here and score praise from you. All of the praise goes to God because I am speaking to you God's truth. And then he gives this, this second statement of conviction when he says to them, you, you would know this, you would understand this if you were doing God's will. You're used to listening to teachers who long for praise. You're, you're used to listening to teachers who say things that flatter you, and so therefore you flatter them back and you give them glory and you say that their teaching is wonderful. He says that's because you lack spiritual discernment. That's the point of verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. He's saying if, you're, if you were truly servants of God, if you were doing the will of God, you would hear this and you would say, that is the word of God we are hearing. We, we, we hear that and we understand the authority from which it comes because as it is, you don't get it because you lack spiritual discernment. Now, how does he get away with saying this to a crowd of Jews when, when his comment is you lack spiritual discernment because you're not doing the will of God? That's essentially what verse 17 says. If you were doing the will of God, you would know, but apparently they're not. And so on what basis can he draw that line to help them to see this? And that basis is the law. And that's why he brings in the law of Moses at that point to show them that they are not doing the will of God. No doubt they are thinking to themselves as he is saying this, how dare he accuse us of lacking discernment? How dare he say to us that we are not doing the will of God? After all, we are committed to that. And yet Jesus finishes this section by saying in verse 19, none of you keeps the law, why do you seek to kill me? He says, you're not keeping the law, and in fact, the evidence of that, I'll give you one proof, is that you're seeking to murder an innocent man. He's speaking to a crowd that would have bragged about their allegiance to the law, that they love the law, they live the law, they, they read the law, they, they hear the law preached, they possess it, they know it, they, they talk about it. They, they even believed that their keeping of the law 
was earning them righteousness. That's at the heart of what they were doing wrong was the belief that we are living out the law in such a way that it makes us righteous. Our behavior is so good. Our commitment to the law is so firm. When in reality, Jesus says, the law is condemning you. None of you keeps the law. That is the height of conviction. When you take the very thing that man puts his pride in and believes in and and has all his hope in, in this case, their perceived obedience and goodness and commitment to the law, and take that and flip it and say, no, you're not. You're not keepers of the law. You're breakers of the law. You violate the law. And, And it's not saving you. You are defying God's law, and it's condemning you. It's like that sharing of the gospel with somebody who says to you, but I'm a good person. I, I, I look after my family, I work hard, I go to church once in a while, I give to charity, I, I let people in in traffic, you know, I, I do good things, and so I must be a good person, when in reality, the, the Word of God says, no, we are all guilty as sinners. We all stand condemned before God because of our sin. You are still an idolater and a lawbreaker. The desires of your heart are still self-centered if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ. They are still ultimately motives that are self-driven. Ever since a year earlier in Jerusalem, when Jesus had healed that paralyzed man, there was this ongoing conversation about killing him. Jesus confronts that, and he he shows them that he knows it. You are lawbreakers, and in fact, one of the ways I can prove that is you're very well aware of all of the conversation right now about murdering me, about uh, taking the life of an innocent man. Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The crowd's response to the conviction that Jesus renders to them is just classic blame shifting. No, no, you're the one who's wrong in this. Nobody here is trying to kill you. You're nuts. You must be demon-possessed because I don't even know where you get that from. There's there's nothing like that going on here. The irony is we'll come down to verse 25, and, and they are again conversing amongst themselves saying, is this the guy that the authorities want to kill? They are very much aware of the plot to kill Jesus Christ. But at this moment, even though he has seen into their hearts, it's like, no, 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 no. That, that's not true. So watch his response. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, there's a lot in this section. Let's talk about it. Jesus had obviously done a lot of miracles by this point. We've read some of them in John's gospel. We could see some of them in the other gospels. But when he says, I did one work, he is referring back to that one work in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethsaida that becomes sort of the the touch point to all of this. That work with which the the Jewish leader said, oh, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath, and therefore... uh, you're claiming equality with God by doing this, and Jesus confirmed that in John chapter 5, that he very much was. So how does that miracle then connect with what he then goes on to say about Moses and circumcision and the Sabbath and the law? If you're reading out of the ESV, as I'm, I'm reading from, there's a word missing there that the NAS puts in, and that is accurate in terms of the Greek text. And that it's a little preposition at the beginning of verse 22. The NAS says, on this account. So you go verse 21, Jesus, I did one work and you all marvel at it. 
on this account or because Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. It's a causal statement. I healed this man on the Sabbath because on account of the law of the Sabbath. So the question here is, what does that mean? In, in verses 22 and 23, he is making the point that your argument is that my healing of that man was contrary to the Sabbath, that I shouldn't have done it because that's a day when there is no work and, and, and I should not have been allowed to heal him and then to tell him to carry his mat and walk, that all of that broke the Sabbath. And so you argue that I did that contrary to the law. law. I healed him because of the law. In fact, because of the law concerning the Sabbath. And so he'll use circumcision to illustrate that point. First thing he says is just the corrective, and that is circumcision is not just from Moses. In fact, circumcision is from God through Abraham before the law. Circumcision came even before Moses gave the law. Uh, But more importantly, he says, if you have a boy who is born on the Sabbath then the law requires that eight days later he be circumcised. The Jewish calendar is inclusive of all those days. So eight days later then is the Sabbath again, and he is to be circumcised on that day. And even though the Jewish leaders had set up all of these rules to protect the Sabbath, to keep people from doing any form of work, they came to the conclusion that in order to obey the law, circumcision should be allowed. That circumcision took a higher priority than, than Sabbath-keeping, and so it was allowed. The irony here, as Jesus is pointing out, is you'll take circumcision and you'll elevate that over Sabbath, and yet healing a man who has been paralyzed, unable to move for most of his life, unable to even get himself in a pool of water nearby, that that somehow is a, a lower priority, that that doesn't count in some way? What what Jesus is saying to them is on your man-made scale of priorities, you put circumcision above Sabbath. You allow it. In God's economy, healing a man on the Sabbath is not just acceptable, it actually fulfills the Sabbath. Remember what the Sabbath was created for. On six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. You shall rest from your labor. The whole point of the Sabbath was for man to give man that benefit of of regathering strength after six days of work. Here is a man who for 38 years knew nothing but unrest and suffering and hardship. Life, Life was hard for him for 38 years. His inability to move and just to do basic things in life. God created the Sabbath as an act of mercy to give rest to his people, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath as an act of mercy to set this man free, to finally give him the the feeling of what true rest was from his struggle and from his suffering and the burden that he had for decades. That's why Jesus is indignant here about their anger over what he did. And that's why then he says at the beginning of verse 22, because I did one work and you marvel at it, and I did it because of the law of the Sabbath. He ties it all together with his illustration of circumcision. But what I'm doing is exactly what God designed the Sabbath for. It's to glorify God by giving rest to his people. And he is indignant with them at not seeing this. And this is where he then concludes with this third statement of conviction, which is verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
And it's not, and here again, a little note, the, the, the grammar here is stop judging. It's not a warning, do not judge, as the ESV says. It is stop your judging by appearances. It is Jesus saying, you already do this. You already do these superficial, sort of arbitrary, we think this is good, we think that is bad, and you shouldn't be allowed to do this because we don't think it's right. And he says, stop doing that. Judge by a right standard. Judge by the truth and the righteousness of God. So not only are these individuals failing to discern God's authority as it's being spoken through the words of Jesus Christ, they're missing that, but the far greater problem is the self-reliance, this idea that essentially we're God. We, we decide what's right and wrong. We make judgments about what, what's good and evil. They are making these foolish, fleshly judge, judgments by appearance and not by God's truth. It's the same hypocrisy the world has been carrying on for centuries and continues today. God warns about it in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. When man elevates his opinion over the word of God, whether knowingly or not, says that his opinion ultimately is what rules, then his judgments will be in complete ignorance of the word of God. And that's why we have a culture around us that says, this feels good, this seems okay to me, so therefore it should be all right. This I don't like so much, or I don't like when other people do this, so this should be banned. Eh, but this, yeah, this is fun, so this is okay. Sin, righteousness, who cares? It doesn't bother me and it feels good, so it must be okay. We live in a culture that doesn't even want the righteousness of God to have an influence anymore. I, I, I think you could go back perhaps to the, the, the sermon I mentioned earlier in 1957 and find an American culture that, at least in some areas, as, as flawed and as, as evil as it was in a lot of areas, at least in some areas had a sense for, well, there's probably a God and, and, and there's probably the Ten Commandments and we'll, we'll sort of accept some of those things. And yet now we have a culture that, that wants the righteousness of God as far away as possible and hates the righteousness of God to the point that people on social media tweeting horrible things this week about Billy Graham and, and what an awful person he is. And I, it, it just astounds me that it, it's a culture now that is so anti-God that anything that even remotely connects itself must be equally horrible or worse. The fact that biblical Christianity is increasingly despised and subject to mockery is a warning. It, is, it goes right back to this, what Jesus says, a warning that's tied to this. And Jesus saying, of course, the culture has no ability to make righteous judgments. All the culture does is judge what feels good to me, what seems right to me. This, this is based on my, my judgment and my appearance is good. And it is a worldview that is not just different from biblical Christianity. It is defiantly opposite to it. By way of application for you and I, verse 24 should be a profound reminder that we must keep working hard to look at life through the grid of God's word. It, this is not just a world problem. This is a problem for all of us in terms of judging by appearances and not judging rightly. The ability to fall into worldly sort of thinking and make judgments based on what feels good is not, we're not immune from that as believers in Jesus Christ. And so this should be a good warning to us to say, what is God's standard here? What does the righteousness of God mean in this situation? How am I applying God's truth 
to my decision here. This charge to judge not by appearances but with a right judgment should be one that we remind ourselves and lovingly remind each other, how are you judging this? What grid are you looking through on this? Are, are you resting on God's word on this or is it just what feels right? We are surrounded by that culture and the overwhelming influence of that culture and social media are trying desperately to convince us to soften our beliefs, to lighten the, the look at sin, to tolerate behaviors. We hear the word um, toleration just over and over again from our culture because it's largely saying that to the biblical Christian worldview, you got to let it go. You've got to give in on this because the rest of us have come around on this thing and we have got a world that will cajole and tempt and badger you if you strive to be different and like Christ in how you look at the world. And so this is a good verse for us to be applying as well to how we make judgments. Verse 25, let's go on. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Okay, so there again is the confirmation of what Jesus said earlier. They did, they knew very well what was going on. Verse 26, and here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Ah, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So verse 25 is confirming. Verse 19, Jesus said, you are seeking to kill me. They pleaded ignorance. Here they are admitting that indeed that there was widespread discussion about killing Jesus. And in fact, to the point that they are now saying to themselves, why aren't our leaders getting this guy? He just came to the temple. He's now speaking openly. They vowed to execute him. This is the time when they should take him and kill him. Could it be that he's the Messiah? And so they sort of wrestle through this question. The common rabbinic belief of that day was that when the Messiah came, he would be a flesh-and-blood man, but his origins would not be known. In other words, you wouldn't be able to describe his biography at this point. Say, well, he's from Nazareth, and his parents are Mary and Joseph, and his dad was a carpenter. You wouldn't be able to do all that. He would be a flesh-and-blood guy, but he would just show up kind of like a superhero, suddenly shows up on the scene, and they would all be in awe, and nobody would know, where did this guy come from? He just appeared. The trouble is, in their minds, they're thinking, no, but we know Jesus. We know he's from Nazareth. We know that his dad was a carpenter. We know about Mary and Joseph. This is this ordinary guy again. And so again, they're, they're, they're momentarily speculating and saying, could he be? Nah, nah, we don't think so. He can't be. So verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. Tie the you know me back to what he's already said about how you judge by appearances. You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. I just point out that in each of these encounters Jesus has, he could have chosen to go softer. Could have chosen to be a little gentler. Uh, and, and sort of work with them a little bit. This one, he knows that they are talking about his origins. They're amongst themselves going, could he be the Christ? Nah, he's from Nazareth, Mary and Joseph, we know all that. Jesus, at, at that moment, could have said, no, no, wait, listen. That, that, that whole thing, that, talk to Mary. That was a virgin birth. 
That would amaze you if you knew all the details. And I was born in Bethlehem, and if you look up Micah 5, 2, you'll see that that, that works too. And, and, and my signs, I've certainly had the, the signs, and he could sort of try to cater to them and, and respond to them. And instead, Jesus says to them, you know me, or at least you think you do. You know me by appearances, the way that you judge things. Problem was not that they... They lacked the details about the virgin birth, or they needed to see more signs in order for it all to be confirmed. The problem is what Jesus described in verse 28, when he says, he who, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. And there is the indictment that slams them. I have been sent from God, and you don't know God. That's a, that is a breathtaking statement of conviction to give to a Jewish audience, many of whom have traveled to be there to celebrate a religious festival at the temple in Jerusalem. They are participating in religious activities at the temple where God is worshipped. And Jesus now says to them, you know what? You don't know God. Your problem with me is that that's just symptomatic of the bigger problem. You, you want to sit here and you want to judge me and think that you know enough about me that you can decide my credentials. The fact is you don't know God. You think you're smart and wise and, and righteous and you can sit in judgment, but you are far from God. You are speaking out of total ignorance in that you do not have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And, and the proof of that is the fact that they did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah sent from God. That this one who had been with them now for two years and speaking truth and, and performing miracles and, and saying that he is from God and clearly identifying himself as a savior, they're oblivious to all of that. And he says, there's the proof. This is not just an issue between you and I. This is a problem between you and God at this moment because you don't know him. In John 8, 19, Jesus will say to a crowd in Jerusalem, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Their failure to recognize Jesus was the lack of an intimate relationship with God. God had become just sort of a, a figure in a religion, a guy who had told them things to do, and they went and practiced these things and assumed they were right with God. And in fact, Jesus says, You don't even know him. Later in John chapter 15, before his crucifixion, he's preparing his disciples and saying, listen, after I'm gone, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to come after you. And he says in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They will persecute you, not because so much they despise you, it's because they despise the God that you belong to. It's because they don't know him. They haven't bowed before him as Lord and master and creator. They don't worship him, and therefore they will attack you. And so the rejection of Jesus Christ is the rejection of the creator God. To not trust in Jesus is to not know the one true God. We've seen Jesus, at least just in terms of of methodology, if you will, in terms of his approach, do this before, where he's standing before a crowd that is accusing, that is sinfully foolish in the things that it says, and Jesus doesn't back down, but rather, again, he doubles down on them. Imagine standing before a crowd in Jerusalem of all places of supposedly pious Jews and saying what he has just said. Jesus told his siblings, his 
his brothers, his own people. He told his siblings, you're of the world, and the world is evil. I don't, I don't do what you tell me to do because you're of the world. He told the crowd, you lack spiritual discernment because you break God's law. You are lawbreakers, and you have no idea when you hear God's word even spoken. You can't even identify it because you have no discernment. Third, he said, you lack righteousness, so you make these superficial judgments about, about people and things that are purely based on appearances and not on the righteousness of God or what's true. And then finally, he says, you don't know God, and to make matters worse, you think you do. You think you've got this all figured out, and you are clueless. Conviction of sin matters. In each one of these instances, Jesus goes right to the heart and says, you're lacking righteousness. You're a breaker of the law. You don't know God. You're in the world. Those are, those are tough things. And yet, look, look at the end of this section, and we'll stop here, 30 and 31. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That is remarkable. Many of the people believed in him. Many of them said, this must be the Messiah, because I don't know what more we're expecting here, but this must be the Messiah. God, all the while, Jesus Christ is, is saying these hard, convicting truths going straight for the heart. God is using that all the while to draw people to himself. He is saving people through this conviction of sin to the point that many believe in him. Most of us, if given the option on our worst day of the week, whatever day that is for you, Monday or Tuesday when the work week is early and it just seems like it's never going to end and the boss has not been kind and things are not going well, most of us have given the choice between would you like five or ten minutes of warm flattery that may or may not be fully honest but will certainly make you feel good and, and tell you nice things? Or would you like someone to come and tell you the truth about what you've done wrong over the last 24 hours and help you to see your sin that you're trying to run away from? Most of us, probably our hearts at least, go for A, right? I'll take the warm flattery, you know? I, I'll, I'll deal with the sin. I, I'm not so sure I really want to hear the conviction. And yet, Jesus is modeling for us that that conviction is the most gracious thing he can do for them. They are lost, and they don't know God, and they think they do, and they desperately need someone to tell them outside the temple in Jerusalem that all this ritual stuff you're doing isn't getting you any closer to God. You're still lost, and you need a Savior. And so Jesus, in his evangelism, continues to, to pierce at their heart with their own sin. Now, obviously, you and I don't have the the supernatural insight Jesus does precisely into people's thoughts and motives. But we have a pretty good understanding of the human heart from our own experience and the deceptiveness of our own heart and, and, and the things that our own hearts will do. And we have the word of God to tell us that, listen, lost people often will accept flattery and glory far quicker and more gladly than they will pointing out sin and, and conviction of sin. And yet the spirit of God and this passage is using precisely that sort of penetrating truth to open their eyes to see how much they need Jesus Christ. This guy who 
most of the crowd is passed off as this ordinary guy from Nazareth who brings nothing to the table. It says many of them believe in him because God is doing something supernatural in that to make them see their need and their sin. We should not be afraid to tell people the truth about sin. We should do so with kindness. We should do so with humility as fellow sinners. We are not coming to them from a, a, a unique position. We know what it is to sin, and, and when we know what it is to struggle with sin, and so we should come with humility and with grace and, and, and show them that when you see that it's sin, well, there's a Savior who has come to rescue you from that. Sin seems like the worst thing to our culture, a terrible thing. Call people sinners. Oh, what a horrible term. And yet that is exactly the thing Jesus came for. He said, I've not come for the righteous, but I've come for sinners. I've come to bring people to repentance. And that's the glory of the gospel. I've been, um, if you're doing your, you know, through the year sort of reading, I don't know if you're where I am, but I've been in Leviticus a lot lately. And I'll put Leviticus on, you know, in the car and, and just listen to Leviticus as I'm driving. And, it's, and then there was this sin offering. If somebody commits this sin, then this animal is killed and this blood is spread. And it's just this ongoing, at times you feel like, sort of almost morbid process of coming to the temple and giving a sin offering or a guilt offering. And yet all of that is to point to the fact that we worship a holy God who detests sin and who sees sin as the thing that needs to be dealt with. And all of those sacrifices are all designed to point to one ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so the Lamb of God has come, and he's still saying to people, listen, I know you think you got this figured out, but sin is the problem, and it's what's separating you now from the creator that you think you know so well and you don't. And if you will only believe in me and see that the beauty of the gospel is that sin is dealt with at the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If sin is what stands between you and God, or if sin is what's standing in your way of your relationship with someone else, the beauty of that is God offers repentance and reconciliation repeatedly throughout Scripture. He is a forgiving, loving God who calls us to be a repentant people who seek reconciliation because he's taken care of the sin part through his son, Jesus Christ. He has come for sinners, and there's hope in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is in that place of perhaps thinking they've got enough knowledge about God and not really sure of what it would look like to stand before you, not confident that standing before you they could rest in Jesus Christ. I, I just pray, Lord, and plead with you that you would open their eyes to see what, what the Savior did in giving his life as a ransom by rising to power, rising to life eternal, he has now become the judge, and he is the one who can save and condemn, and he can save by virtue of what he has done on the cross. And so, Lord, might you save any here listening who are not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, remind us again from your word to be faithful to the whole gospel, to not be ashamed or to shirk away from addressing sin, to understand that we all come from a position of having broken your law, of having been 
hostile toward you and enemies. And it's only by your grace that you redeem lost sinners. And so, Lord, may we be faithful to proclaim in the gospel that there is a Savior who will rescue from the punishment and the penalty of sin. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that where sin is standing in the way of fellowship with you or standing in the way of relationship with others, Lord, may you work in our hearts this day to be humble, to not make judgments by appearance, but Lord, to seek to to do your will, to be convinced that if scripture says this is what we must do and this is how we must humble ourselves and this is the forgiveness we must seek, that we should do that trust you to provide the healing and the relationship and the fellowship. Lord, help us to be a people who love your holiness and despise sin, but who also are grateful. And as sinners, we've, we've been brought to the cross. And sin was punished in its fullness, in its horror, in its destruction on the cross in Jesus Christ. Thank you that, as as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, the death and resurrection of Christ defeats sin and death. It has no sting. It has no victory for those who are trusting in Jesus as Savior. As we worship now in song, Lord, we pray that you would hear from us the glad-hearted thankfulness for what you've done in our lives to rescue us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.